we started the first Sunday in April. So we got April, May, June, July, and now Lord willing, the next today and, and next week we'll uh, finish up the study of the life of Joseph. And from uh, day one, almost every week, I've emphasized that one of the major takeaways of this portion of Scripture is to illustrate the redeeming power of perseverance, that's a holy hanging in there, and forgiveness. You see an incredible grace and forgiveness on Joseph's part. The redeeming power of perseverance and forgiveness in believers who actively live in light of the sovereignty and the providence of God. You intended it for evil. God intended for good. I've been forgiven so much. I can forgive you. Let's reconcile and walk together. It's kind of the overall story of the book. However, even though I've, James, I've gone over that statement a bunch of times, I'm going to have to amend it in light of what we're going to look at this week and next week. So let's change the wording just slightly, see if you can tell the difference. We're going to look at the redeeming power of perseverance and forgiveness in believers. Janice Skinner and Wade Ebersole and Julie Miller and Carol Wanzer. The redeeming power of perseverance and forgiveness in believers who actively live and die in light of the sovereignty and the providence of God. Who actively interact with life and death our own, and those of others. So today we're going to look at Genesis 49, verse 29, to chapter 50, verse 14, as we see Jacob's death, the father of the 12 sons. And we're going to see dealing with death as something believers should do directly, not deny it like our culture tends to do, respectfully and wisely. Now, several years ago, a Christian philosopher and theologian and generally, you have to be careful of those people, don't you? Um, his name's Oz Guinness. He said this, and I thought it was quite good. He said, until the late 1960s and early 1970s, U.S. popular culture, meaning TV shows, magazines, movies, uh, popular written materials, books, and so on, until the late 60s, early 1970s, U.S. popular culture talked about death all the time and in great detail but seldom talked about sex. Since that time, which is a long time ago, I realize, but uh, Debbie and I graduated in 71, 1971, so we were right in the middle of, from high school. But he says, since that time, the culture talks about sex all the time, the popular culture, but very seldom deals with death. If there's no sin, you don't need a Savior. If there's no death, you don't need a Savior. Let's just eliminate the concept of sin and death and everybody have fun, and it's not sustainable, folks. Um, now, in contrast to that cultural trend we've had, so, you know, I look at anybody under 40, they don't know what it's like to live in a culture that dealt with death all the time, but saw sex as, as sacred and incredible. There's whole books of the Bible about sexuality and marriage, including Song of Solomon. Once you read that a couple of times, you'll start putting your Bible in a brown paper bag. You'll be, you'll be embarrassed people know you read it. So it's all good in that context, but the Bible speaks to both sex and death, and in our passage today, it models, I think, for us, now, hey, we're New Testament Christians reading the Old Testament, so we read it through a New Testament lens, obviously, right? But with that in mind, we're going to see how believers can and should deal with death, both our own mortality and with the, the deaths of others around us. And, of course, we got a trump card, don't we? I'm not referring to the president, okay? You know what a trump card is? 
Because Christ, Tim, because Christ died for your sins, you don't have to die in your sins. That's the trump card. Now, the death of Christ is validated. The power is validated by the resurrection. If you don't have a resurrected Savior, you don't have a Savior. You just have a martyr. Okay? Lots of people have died for good causes. Only Jesus Christ predicted his resurrection, explained the purpose of his death, and then died for our sins and rose again. So if you're interested in dealing with death, you've got to go through the cross, and that's where you start. But we're looking at believers in the Old Testament dealing directly, respectfully, wisely with death. And I'm praying that I'll have the grace to do that myself. And you will too. Speaking of death, El Paso, Dayton, Ohio. It's not a political problem, folks. It's a moral, spiritual problem. People don't fear God. They don't fear man. And they kind of do whatever the heck they want to do to whomever they want to do it to. And it's the jungle out there when you don't have those kind of constraints. But let's pray for those military folks and peace officers and firefighters that are on the front lines of dealing with that cultural decay. But more importantly, let's pray that we'll be uh, teachable to God's word this morning. Father, we do thank you for those male and female believers and unbelievers who serve in the U.S. military, who are peace officers, who are firefighters. And hey, there are bad apples in some police departments. There are bad teachers. There are bad preachers. There are bad lawyers. But the vast majority of these people are serving for a pit, for a pittance um, when so many of us uh, have much more casual, comfortable lives and our, our paychecks may be much bigger than theirs. But these folks serve for a purpose, and I pray especially for those who are believers and their families that you would strengthen, encourage, and protect them. And I pray for us that the Holy Spirit who inspired Moses as he wrote this text thousands of years ago, talking about events hundreds of years before his time, that this text might be illumined by the Spirit, that we would accept it as truth, but not just information, but as binding, convictional kind of truth that will change the way we think and choose and relate to you and to others and to our very own mortality and to the mortality of others. We thank you for the risen Savior. He's our only hope, and we're resting completely in him for our salvation and pray that he'll be glorified through this process and the product of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, we know we're told in Hebrews that the local church <clears throat> needs to be a place where we stimulate one another to love and good works. And this morning, I need to be on the receiving end of that because we're going to talk about dealing with death. And so I'm going to do something no preacher should ever do. I'm going to tell you one of my favorite jokes that most of you have heard me tell badly like 12 times. But I'm asking you to show me Christian love as I tell my favorite joke about death. On the day after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea went to the synagogue. And after the service, one of his powerful friends from the Sanhedrin said, Why in the world would you give that troublemaking Galilean preacher that brand new, ultra expensive tomb to use? And Joseph, with a smile on his face, said, it's no big deal. He's only going to use it till tomorrow. <laughs> I changed the wording a little bit on the punchline, but yeah. So yeah, that's, that's the answer to dealing with death. Now, I know people think we're crazy for believing it, but he did, he predicted it, he did it, and, uh, that's the, that's the, the key there, right? So here's our passage. We're dealing with death directly, respectfully, and wisely in this passage. And it breaks down like this in verses 29 through 32 of chapter 49. 
we see after giving specific instructions to his sons, Jacob tells them where he wants to be buried and why Jacob dies. It's the way of all men. Uh, we were talking to Wade and Deanne, and we said, you know, one of those Bible promises nobody wants to claim in the United States is Psalm 73. My flesh and my heart will fail. Nobody wants that, right? It's pointed on the man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. So that's the first part. Second part of this passage, chapter 51 through 11. Jacob's life and death are commemorated respectfully as a testimony to his faith in God and God's promises. God does keep his promises, but he keeps his promises on his schedule, not Sonia's, and not Billy Graham's, and not even Brad McCoy's or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. So you, you trust in the promises and you persevere. And then finally, verses 12 through 14, after the funeral services, Joseph and his brothers return to Egypt to begin a new chapter in their lives. When you lose great people, even though we uh, have anticipation, if they're in the Lord of seeing them again, uh, we still grieve. I don't care how spiritual you are. If you get cut, you're going to bleed. And if you suffer a loss, you're going to grieve. And uh, you need to be prepared for that and not be surprised by that. Okay, let's look at verses um, 29 through 32 of chapter 49. After giving specific instructions to his sons about where he wanted to be buried, Jacob died. Verse 29, and he charged them after blessing them last week. We saw him going through the 12 sons and anticipating the future direction of them and their tribes. They would head. Then he charged them and said to them, Jacob talking to the 12 sons, I'm about to be gathered to my people. I'm going to see Abraham, my uh, grandfather, and Isaac, my my daddy, and my mom, all who died in faith. Uh, I'm going to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers, not here in Egypt, but in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which Abraham had bought several hundred years before this to set all this up as a family graveyard in the promised land, even though Israel's not in the promised land right now. They're in Egypt. Uh, in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, which Abraham, back in chapter 23 of Genesis, bought along with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, for a burial site. Uh, then they buried, there they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I, Jacob says, I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased in the sons of Heth. I want you to go back to the promised land because I believe those promises are going to be fulfilled, but they're not going to be filled in our generation. God's program is bigger than any one individual, any local church, any denomination, any nation. God's not a Republican. He's not an American. He's bigger than that. And he has this multi-generational plan. And it's the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's our turn to contribute. And so we ought to take that in perspective. So we are important, but we're not ultimate. Uh, doesn't work like that. Sometimes the first time I was going to do an outdoor wedding as a young pastor, so we practiced, and then it rained the next day, and the bride looked at me like, Hey, I thought you worked for God. Didn't you tell him we were going to have this wedding today? Why are you laying it rain on my parade? Literally. So we kind of crammed it into a living room. And uh, I've learned this at Dallas Seminary, but the, what you say as a minister to stuff like that, you say, hey, I'm in sales, not management. <laughs> I don't tell God how to do the weather. I, we pray, but sometimes it rains on your parade. Uh, yeah, let's uh, put this in a New Testament context, since we are New Testament believers uh, this is a survey of your Bible. The Bible's a big book, but it only has two parts. 
First part is called the Old Testament, anticipates and predicts the coming of Christ as the Lamb. Second part is called what? The New Testament explains in detail what he did and what he's going to do in the second advent. The premise of the Old Testament is that everybody sins, everybody dies. I know about Enoch and Elijah, but they were, they were massive exceptions. You know, everybody sins, everybody dies, but God's going to send the lamb to take care of the sin problem and eventually rule the world. Christ comes. He was in the world. The world didn't know him. Came into his own. His own didn't receive him. But to everyone who receives him, then he gave the right to become sons of God to those who believe. Right? So in the aftermath of those great events of the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection, ascension, the New Testament writers say the one major thing we want you to know above everything else is Jesus is the one the Old Testament promise would come because he died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. And he's coming back. Okay? And we've emphasized that God knows the future because he controls the future and he's planned the future. Now, looking at a very dysfunctional family that has been transformed by the grace of God. I'm talking about Jacob and his 12 sons. And they're important not just for any reason except the whole human glide path to get Jesus here starts with them. And so, At least it, it, in a seminal foundational way involves Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And you might think Joseph would be the one that would be the son to whom the Messiah would come. But look at this Old Testament information about who the Savior is going to have to be. And when you look at who it's going to be from a human point of view, it's not going to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, who's been focused on the last third of Genesis. It's going to be Judah. Jesus is the the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Now, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Were they saved by keeping the law? No, by the works of the law, no one can be justified in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You need a Savior. Their faith was directed forward to the promised Savior, Joe. You and I are saved by faith backward toward the provided Savior, right? So we're talking about folks that are foundational part of the human raw material, and you see all of their warts and all, don't you, in these narratives, that's going to lead uh, to the first coming of Christ. And watch this. In the Old Testament, they knew a lot more than some people give them credit for. Uh, in Genesis 15.6, we read Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and these promises he had given about land, seed, and a blessing that would eventually, uh, the seed would bless the whole world, be the Savior. Abraham believed God, uh, Romans, uh, Genesis says, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then Jesus in John 8 says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he's living in 2000 B.C., but he saw it with the eyes of faith, the promised Savior. He saw it and was glad. I guess so, because through faith he had been made righteous. And then Romans 4, 5, New Testament data tells us same principle, more specific object of faith, but to the one who does not work. Saving faith is a rational act. It's not a meritorious work. But who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. There's the catch. You've got to be ungodly to be saved. But don't worry, you qualify. And so do all your family and your neighbors compared to God's perfect righteousness. That person's faith, the ungodly person who trusts Christ, is reckoned as righteousness. So we're looking at really key raw material here from a human point of view that God is using thousands of years before the fact to make sure this happens. Now look again at what Jacob says when he describes his death. He says... Uh, I'm about to be gathered to my people, Abraham, his grandfather, Sarah, his grandmother, uh, Isaac, his dad, Rebecca, 
his mother, you know, Leah, one of his wives. He had several, you know. But watch this. I want you to think hard for five minutes on a Sunday morning. I know it's countercultural. I know we're told you can't do that anymore. I believe in you. Faith is only as good as its object, though. Just so you'll know. Okay. In the Old Testament, everybody who dies goes to Sheol. Look it up. Get your concordance out sometime. Everybody dies, goes to Sheol. How does that work? Jesus tells us in Luke 16, Sheol was a general description for the place of the dead. Believers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went to a place of paradise, referred to as Abraham's bosom or Abraham's presence in Luke 16. There's a great gulf fixed between the upper compartment. You want to stay in the upper level. And this is the no smoking section, by the way. Uh, everybody who dies goes to Sheol in the Old Testament before the atonement is made. But uh, there's a place called paradise where believers went, a place called torments where other folks go, unbelievers went. Then you got a special place for certain demons, okay? But in the New Testament, we read stuff like for the believer, for Debbie McCoy, for James Mitchell, physical death is to be absent from the body face to face with the Lord. Where's the Lord Jesus now? Since the ascension, he's not in paradise, he's... In the abode of God, I call it the second heaven. That's heaven one, that's heaven two, eternal state be heaven three. Absent from the body, how'd that happen? Well, guess what? Old Testament believers are saved based on the promised Savior. They're being saved on credit. The payment hadn't been made yet in real time. After the atonement is made and at the ascension, everybody in paradise got promoted to heaven. Okay, and since that time, believers... We bury the body, we cremate the body, whatever happens to the body, but uh, our spirits go to be with the Lord. Unbelievers are still going to torments, okay? Now, real quick, I know that because when the thief, and he wasn't a thief, Jesus wasn't crucified between two thieves. The word is terrorist. The Romans only crucified bad people that killed Romans or Roman Jewish associates. So what does he tell the terrorist on the cross who says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I'm a sinner, I can't fix it. But I want you to, and I believe you can. What did Jesus say to him? That's saving faith. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Okay? Now guess what? On the day of the, that's Friday. On the day of the resurrection, when Mary sees the resurrected Christ, she does what any good woman would do with someone she cares about, who she thought was dead and now alive. She grabs hold of him and won't let go. The King James says, touch me not. But the, uh, present imperative, with the ume means let go of me. I think Jesus let him, let her grab him for a minute because he's tangible in his resurrection body. But after about 15 minutes, he's saying, hey, let go of me, Mary. I've only got 40 days before I ascend. I got stuff to do. But he says, let go of me because I've not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. When Jesus tells the terrorist on the cross, today you're going to be within paradise, he's talking about Abraham's bosom. When he tells Mary, a couple days later, I've been to he- I haven't been to heaven yet. I haven't been to my Father's present. I Means I haven't been ascended yet. But that's where we're going to go. We're going to go. If you're a believer in Christ, if you trusted Him for salvation, physical death isn't just a medical event. It's a spiritual event where your soul leaves your body and it goes to where Jesus is, preparing you a place. Right. So th- that's more than you maybe wanted to know, but it will explain a lot of the Old Testament that otherwise is fa- is very confusing to some people. One more thing about the Old Testament and the New Testament. These promises God makes to Abraham are the foundation for the whole biblical story. The promise he's going to send a savior through that human line. They're going to be given a certain land tract, etc. 
Now, 500 years after Abraham has given those basic promises repeated to Isaac and Jacob, right, as we've seen in Genesis, we've got spirituality with training wheels on it to get the Messiah here. That ethnic group, the Jews, are given special revelation in the Old Testament law. But what do, you, what do we know about the New Testament Christian and the Old Testament law? Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe, okay? We're not, we're not, we don't have to submit to the ceremonial aspects of the law or the civil criminal aspects of the law. We're under Oklahoma state and U.S. federal law as far as that concerned. Well, you mean, so murder and theft is okay now because that's in the Old Testament law? No. The moral prescription to the law were always rooted in the righteousness of God. They didn't start being, it was wrong to eat shellfish after the law for the Jews, but that's not an inherently moral thing. It's a ceremonial thing. There are thousands of different Christian denominations. We disagree on a lot of the minor things. But one thing nobody does anymore is sacrifice animals, even though there's a whole book in the Old Testament that tells you how to sacrifice animals for ritual purposes called the Leviticus book. You've heard of it? Nobody sacrifices animals anymore because even though we disagree on exactly what baptism is involved in and what Lord's Supper means and stuff like that, we realize all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were part of the Old Testament law pointing to that, the atonement, the perfect work of Christ. We're on that side of that ledger. We don't need that anymore, right? All right, we can now give you a degree in Old Testament theology. Let's continue, okay? Let's go to chapter 50, verses 1 through 11. After giving specifics to the Son, now we're going to see Jacob's life and death were commemorated respectfully and directly and wisely and as a testimony to his faith in God and to God's promises. So let's look at that portion. Now let me read you from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Over half of the final chapter of Genesis, Genesis 50, is occupied with a description of the mourning for and the death of Jacob. Great preparations were made both by Joseph for this and the Egyptians. A special request was granted by the Pharaoh, as we're going to see, to allow Joseph and the boys to take Jacob out of Egypt and bury him in that in Canaan, in the Promised Land. And a large entourage was provided as a burial procession to carry Jacob's body back to Canaan. All of Pharaoh's officials, all the dignitaries, along with a large military brigade, uh, accompanied that. Why such detail over the burial of Jacob when the deaths of Abraham, Isaac, and even Joseph are just simply recounted with the very bare facts that they died and were buried? Why so so much emphasis on Jacob? Well, this commentator says... Uh, even the account of the death of Joseph consists only of a brief notice he died and was embalmed and entombed in Egypt. But he said, eventually, I want you to take my bones back to uh, the promised land. Well, this is one theory, and I think it's right. Moses, who's writing Genesis, has been focusing on God's faithfulness to his promise of the land and the seed and the blessing. Jack, this is really important for your historical knowledge of the scripture and to support it in a culture that doesn't believe in sin, doesn't want to talk about death, and won't let you quote the Bible anymore, basically, in polite company. You don't want to offend anybody. Uh, and all these things uh, are testimony to God's faithfulness and the hope of God's people and the eventual return to the promised land and later Old Testament prophetic, prophetic literature as a repeated recurring image emphasizes the future fulfillment of that promise to return to the land. This And so this whole thing of taking Jacob, Abrahamizing Jacob back to the promised land is a statement of their faith that eventually their progeny 
in God's timing, 400 years later, as it turns out, would be God's promises would be fulfilled literally. So let's look at this. After his life and death uh, commemorated, uh, we're testifying to his faith. Look at verses 1 through 3. Joseph made sure his body's, his dad's body was treated respectfully. Then Joseph, seeing his dad pass away, literally in his presence, um, and you know, I didn't read the last verse, did I? Look at verse 33. When Jacob finished charging his sons, take me back to Canaan and bury me there, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That's a euphemism for physical death. Now, verse 1 of chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him and kissed him. You know, anytime you have a departure like that, it's going to be a very emotional thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Joseph then commanded his servants, the physicians... Notice, not the Egyptian priests, who also embalmed, and embalmed most people. He gets the MDs to do it, the non-theologians, uh, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. And as you know, the Egyptians were experts at this and had a long procedure for doing this. There you have the mummies and the different, you know, uh, King Tut and all that good stuff. Now, 40 days were required for this type of uh, high-quality, high-priced embalming. For such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians then were, in connection with Jacob's death, officially wept for him 70 days. They were flying the flags half-mast, not for a month, but 70 days. And that's interesting because we know from Egyptian history, when the pharaoh died, after he's embalmed, you know how long they would have official state uh, days of mourning? 72 days. They have so much respect for Joseph as their prime minister. And when Joseph's dad dies... He gets like a, you know, 21 gun salute. He gets almost as much national mourning as the Pharaoh himself would have got. So that's very significant. Um, and I love that. And it's interesting. I like the, the MacArthur study Bible here commenting on the physicians were the ones to embalm. Joseph summoned medical men who were fully capable of embalming rather than the religious priest embalmers in order to avoid the magic and I'd say the uh, occult kind of thing, the magic and mysticism associated with their practices. With He didn't want the Egyptian priests saying, hocus pocus, samanokus over J- Jacob, you know. Let's just have the, the, the doctors, you know, who play it straight, just do the medical, the physical process. Usually in Egypt, mummifying was a 40-day process, which included gutting the body, drying it, and wrapping it. Aren't you glad you came to church? You know, the things you learn in church. Okay, look at verses 4 through 6. Joseph, respecting his human leader, the Pharaoh, sought permission from Pharaoh to take his father's body back to Canaan. I think there's some good lessons here for people that on company time are doing Bible studies or prayer meetings. If you've got time off for lunch, do your Bible study, do your prayer meeting, but don't do it on company time. They're paying you not to do Bible studies. That's the cool thing about being a pastor. I can study in the Bible all day and not have any ethical problems. You know, they kind of pay me to do stuff like that. So that's why I got such a big, uh, big bicep because I got a big, heavy study Bible. You know, so carry it around. You get buff like me. It's a really cool thing. Um, become a pastor and become, you know, a male model. It's great. Look at verse four. I don't mean that, obviously. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh for me. Why he's not going directly uh, is debated. Uh, it's kind of like, where's Daniel in chapter 3? We're not told. 
It's possible pharaohs in a separate part of the country, and it's not possible for them to directly communicate. It's also very possible that the pharaoh would not should not be bothered by people's personal problems. Okay, uh, he was very happy to have Joseph administering all the the government programs. He did so well, but it's quite possible there, there are allusions to this in Egyptian history. You don't bother. In other words. When you go see the Pharaoh, it's always about happy things, good news, and don't mention your personal problems, including death of your relatives to him directly. So that, that's probably what happened there. You can ask Joseph in heaven the, the reason. But anyway, he, he says to the household of the Pharaoh, kind of the, the inner circle, please speak to the Pharaoh for me. My father Jacob made me promise, saying, I'm about to die. Uh, and in my grave, which I dug... That almost certainly means the Hebrew there is better translated, which I bought. But New American Standard says, which I dug. I don't think he dug his grave, but it's possible. It's just sitting there. Which I dug, which I bought for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Uh, now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I'll return. Pharaoh, through that message system, says, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. And so, you know, it's, it's very, here's an important principle. And this is important for people in ministry, too. You, James and I are trying to do the right things, but we got to do the right things the right way. Michelle, you always have to do the right thing the right way at work. Uh, you always have to do the right thing the right way at school. No moral shortcuts. It would be easy for Joseph. He's smart. He kind of knows where all this stuff is going to lead to eventually. He believes in the Messiah's coming, and they're the human life path through which it's going to happen. He could have said, look, I'm on a mission from God, like the Bruce Brothers, I don't need to ask a pagan pharaoh for permission. I'm just going to go. Plus, I'm the prime minister. What's he going to do? Fire me? Uh, yeah, maybe cut your head off. Other than that, probably nothing, you know. Uh, but he works for the pharaoh. Pharaoh had elevated him. You got to do the right thing the right way. First Corinthians 14 says all things should be done properly in an orderly manner. And Romans 13, New Testament, First Peter 2 tells us to submit to our human authorities, including the government. Uh, when Peter wrote, the command that Christians should submit to the Roman Empire, it was a good thing because, of course, all those Roman emperors were all Christians, right? Really godly Christian guys, right? No, Nero was not a Christian, but in general, what's the principle? Always submit to legitimate human authority, even if they're immoral and not very nice and they cuss and do all kinds of stuff we wouldn't do, until or unless it's a direct sin to submit to human authority because God's always at the top of the chain of command. But in general, submit to human authority. That's what he's doing here. He could have said, I'm on a mission from God. I'm going to do whatever I want to. And Pharaoh can watch my smoke here. No, he's, he gets permission. Okay, He's going to go probably anyway, but he gets permission. Look at verses 7 through 11. Joseph, in his function as the prime minister of Egypt, first guy under the Pharaoh, led a large, spectacular, over-the-top burial procession, which the Pharaoh provided. To Canaan. This is a huge state funeral. I remember the day President Kennedy was assassinated. I was in a public school class. Uh, that's before you couldn't pray and read scripture in uh, uh, public schools. That's unconstitutional now, right? Uh, but uh principal came over and said, Children, President Kennedy has been shot. Please, everybody pray. That's all the news we had. Our teacher read Romans 8 in a public school. The school didn't collapse. Nothing, we didn't have any earthquakes there, no hurricanes that day. And then a few minutes after that, we got the, the call, uh, children, I'm sorry, the, the president has, has died. School is dismissed. And it's kind of like, 
Does mommy know? Is she going to come pick me up? And I walked walked home. Uh, I was in Opelika, Florida. I walked uphill in the snowdrifts <laughs> to get back home. So that was a, I never lie, so you know that. Yeah, I looked at verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders. Of the, you got the whole cabinet. You got all the VIPs in the government, because this is a big national thing to honor the, the passing of the prime minister's dad. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks there in Goshen and Egypt, and they all are going to go to the promised land to bury Jacob. They went up with him also, chariots and horsemen, a big military detachment for protection and just to show the, uh, the importance of this and to respect this uh, person who was so close to Joseph. Uh, a very great company. When they came to the th- fl- threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, which is the long way to go from Egypt to where they're going, uh, uh, Machpelah, which is, uh, would have been easier just to go a different route. I'll show you what I mean in a minute. And let's buzz through that, which I forgot to show you there. Which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days of mourning for his father there on the site. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites... And they're going to become big, you know, later in connection with the, the, the conquest under Joshua. So the morning at the flushing, flushing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous morning for the Egyptians. They, they think it's an Egyptian thing. It's really the Jewish thing. Therefore, his name Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan, thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. Now, this is a satellite photo. And one thing I love to do before I'm showing pictures from the Israel is to say, these are real places, real people, real events. When you look at this part of the world, Jack, always look for that triangular peninsula. That's the Sinai Peninsula. To the left of that's the Nile River, and that's Egypt. And to the right and up is the strip of land we call Israel or Canaan. There's the Sea of Galilee. There's the Jordan River. There's the Dead Sea. Now, when Joseph's family, the brothers, had come from uh, uh, Hebron to go get food, they would have come that kind of that kind of route. That's my favorite song, by the way. So I, <laughs> but, yeah, I thought the, the lyrics on your special music today, James, were, were crazy good, weren't they? Yeah, I love that. But watch this. Typically, you kind of go, this, you know, I, I don't know if they changed this. Now, I grew up in a world where they talk about death and not sex, and where they told us there were nine planets. And then several years ago, they voted Pluto out of the solar system. I mean, you know, so things change, you know, in science sometimes. But uh, I, I think the shortest distance between two two points is a straight line. Is that still? Have they changed that? So yeah, D- Dave's engineer going. Yep, that's still true. Okay, so typically you go like that. But on this trip, they are intentionally going through not directly to Hebron, but Beersheba, and they're going around here. And Atad is somewhere over here for sure. It's on the east side of the Jordan. And so rather than coming from the southwest to bury Jacob, they know where their final destination is. They're coming from the northeast, and there's a reason for that. Now, that's kind of a fuzzy satellite because I had to hang off the bottom of that satellite and take that picture, you know, and I was kind of, I was moving. There's kind of a schematic map. So instead of kind of going like that, they're going like this. I could do that again, but I don't want to. Uh, and let, let me tell you what a, uh, a commentator says about that. This is... Uh, Dr. Uh, 
constable. The accompaniment by Egyptian dignitaries and a military escort reflect the importance of Joseph, not so much Jacob, but Joseph to the Egyptians, and the dignity that is therefore accorded to Jacob, Joseph's father. It also serves a theological purpose showing how far this little family of Abraham, just two generations later, has progressed. God promised to make Abraham's name great and to bless him and his progeny. Now you've got the whole Egyptian government honoring Jacob slash Joseph. So you can see it's, it's happening even though they don't control the promised land yet and most of the great stuff is still future. God promised to make Abraham's name great, to bless him. Now all of Egypt, as it were, stops and pays attention with great pomp and circumstance to the passing of Abraham's grandson, right, Jacob. The exact location of Atad has not been located, but it is east of the Jordan. So it's not on the kind of west side of the Jordan Valley. It's over here somewhere. And that's significant. And the commentator, in fact, says uh, it would be strange for Jacob's remains to be taken east through Transjordan instead of the more direct route. But they're doing it on purpose because that will be the route... Moses, who hands the reins to Jacob, uh, to, to, uh, to Joshua, when they actually conquer the land, they, they conquer it, they enter it from right there, from that basic area. So it's one of those little things that the, Moses doesn't make a big deal about. It. He assumes his readers will eventually figure that out. But the commentator says, it would have been strange. That was kind of, there must have been a reason for them to go the long way around, instead of the more direct route to Hebron. And doing so, it anticipates the roundabout route of the Israelis, after the 40 days are wandering and they come in from that same way. So God has, you know, the big picture in mind. We only see a couple of the pieces of the puzzle in, in our little lives. So you're never going to have enough information to legitimately second guess God, even though it can be extremely tempting at times. And I have been there to my shame. Okay, let's look at the last couple of verses here. Verses 12 through 14. Chapter 50. Thus his sons did for him, Jacob, as he charged them. Buried them not in Egypt, but in the promised land. As a statement, testimony to his faith, of those promises going to be fulfilled in the future. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which is the one that Abraham had bought uh, along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. That's a really interesting story if you want to read about that in Genesis 23 later. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt to take the mantle of still doing his thing for the Pharaoh. That's his job. He and his brothers, the whole family goes back, and all who had gone up, the Egyptians, to bury his father. So his sons did what he was charged. All this is a statement to fulfill promises in the future long after they're gone, realizing we're just one little part of a big, big plan. And we can score points for the team, Tim, but the team's not about us. The team does fine without any of us. People come and go. Don't get too welded to any one uh, person or spiritual leader because, you know, you want to focus on the Lord, not the human leaders. Hopefully we're helpful, but uh, we're not, it's not about us. Take this home from Genesis 49, 29 through chapter 50, verse 14. Dealing with death directly, respectfully, and wisely, as Jacob and his family are doing here, is important for believers in light of the fact that while the now is real, we need to plug into it. Don't say, well, the only thing that counts is heaven, because I'm going to heaven forever, so that isn't really, this isn't really important. Yeah, the now is real. School's real. Hey, school's real. Katie, you know what? When does homeschool start again? Tomorrow? Is it really? 
in a couple of weeks, right? Boy, you should have seen that look when you when she, she was she likes it panic time. Yeah, school's important. I mean, going to work. Well, I don't I don't do what James and Brad do all day, study the Bible and pray all day. I have to make widgets, you know. I have to go to Halliburton. It's not a Christian company. Uh, Joseph wasn't working for a Christian here. Trust me, the Pharaoh here was not a born again Old Testament believer, right? As far as we know. But the now is important, and it's real, but it's not the ultimate, it's only temporary. So those who trust in the Lord to bring about his promised eternal blessings, what are we trusting God for that we haven't seen before? Absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, that's pretty big. We trusted him for, for that, because of who and what he is, what he did, but we haven't seen it yet, right? So we're trusting in his promised eternal blessings. In the same way, Jacob realized, my generation is not going to see my progeny control the promised land, but it's going to happen, and I want to be here you know, in that sense, uh, and testify to that as my, my last kind of uh, af- action as a person here on planet Earth. Uh, yeah, so as we trust in the Lord to bring about his promised eternal future blessings in his ways, in his time, we can glorify and we should glorify God by holding firm to him even when we face grave adversities. And I put it that way on purpose. Grave adversities, meaning dealing with your mortality and the death of other people. Now, we're coming very close to the fifth anniversary of, of Rick being promoted. And it blows my mind. Uh, August 16th? Yeah. I mean, August 16th. Uh, after, you know, I, I, Rick's not lost. We know where he is. Uh, but, uh, you know, for the next, like, two years or so, I thought about Rick every day. And, I, and I've told Carla that. And I don't think about him every day. But I think about him a lot, you know, and I, uh, I miss him a lot, uh, but we haven't lost him. But, uh, you know, and that's, that's our Christian hope. Christian hope is not I hope OSU might beat OU this year in football, but it probably won't happen. You know, hope is, in the Bible, it's looking forward to something you've been promised will happen. You actually know it's going to happen, but it just hasn't happened yet. So part of the uh, blessing of eternity will be uh, all those folks that have faced Grave adversities before us and after us. If they're believers, they're going to be part uh, of the group up there. Uh, but ultimately, we've got to face reality, the reality of our own mortality as well as those, uh, those of others. So anyway, I worked so hard on this wording that I speed it up and I mess it up at the end. Uh, you might say while believers in Christ live under the S-U-N, we must keep our focus on the S-O-N, right? So I'd say that. And again, you got all these great scriptures absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Where's that? Second Corinthians five. That's a good one. Paul says to depart and be with the Lord is much better than being around here. But he realized he had fruitful work to do, so he's happy to stay. I love Psalm seventy-three. Uh, next time, you know, Psalm seventy-three is this cool uh, psalm where, for thirteen verses, the author is mad at God. Not just because bad things happen to good people, but he's really teed off at God because so many good things seem to happen to bad people. You ever thought about that? And he's really upset. And then he resolves it, and he says, hey, my flesh and my heart will fail, but with your hand you're going to guide me and afterward receive me to glory. And those folks are one heartbeat away from torments, and I'm one heartbeat away from paradise. And so why should I, you know, envy the drug dealer or the... A uh, criminal, a person that's really a sloppy, horrible person that's abusing all kinds of people but lives in a big mansion in a fancy house. Nothing to, to be concerned about. Go to John 11. My favorite promises about the resurrection of believers are said by our Lord Jesus himself. And I love 
John 11. I almost always read this passage when I do funeral service for obvious reasons. And I probably should have memorized it by now, but under pressure I tend to forget stuff. Part of the aging process, right? And again, Martha is kind of mad that Jesus didn't hurry up and get there before four days too late and should have fixed this thing. So she says in verse 21, John chapter 11, verse 21, I want you to see this. So look it up. Pull it up on your phone there, Doug. <laughs> yeah. You with me? John 11, verse 21. Martha, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus who died four days before. Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. We sent you a text, and you didn't respond, and uh, you should have been here and taken care of this, kept this from happening. So she's teed off. And then she says, and I think she's hinting, hey, you might have a miracle up your sleeve. I know you can do anything. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, the Father, he'll give you. And in fact, Jesus does resuscitate him. But not because she's nudging him, but because he's going to do it anyway. And he looks at her and says, your brother will rise again. You know, there's a uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would go to paradise, but they won't be resurrected until the future, re- their bodies rejoin with their spirits, supernaturally transformed. But as she says, uh, he says, hey, you can, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha says, I know, I've been to synagogue, I've read the Old Testament. I know he's going to be rise again on the last day, connection with what we'd call the second advent of Christ. Jesus said, hey, look, look here. He said, I am the resurrection. You know, I'm the basis of eternal life, man. You trust in me, you got it. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Not bios, biology, but zoe, spiritual life. The one who believes in me, and he's looking at a woman, not just a man, it's not males, but females, will live even if he dies, absent from the body face to face. And everyone, no color, country, and culture keeps you from this. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. Do you believe this? And she goes, yeah, I do, you know. Yes, Lord, I have believed you're the Christ. You're the one promised in the Old Testament to take care of the sin problem. You're the Son of God, even he who comes in the world. I love that. So, yeah, we're going to have to deal directly and respectfully and wisely with death, in part because we're all mortal, but because if you live long enough, you're going to lose some friends. It's going to happen, and it's painful. Uh, God has designed us for much better stuff than the now. Now, you talk about prayer needs. I mean, uh, Carolyn Hadley is going to have her knee replaced when? Tuesday. Has anybody told her about this surgery? I'm not. Yeah. And that's that's a tough one. And Karen here is still recovering from hers. But here's one I need to tell you about, okay? This Wednesday, we've got a guy in this church who is so insane. I mean, he is so dedicated. He's so tough. He's going to run up Pike's Peak. And then run down. David, Bearden, why are you going to do this, man? You know, it's kind of like, I've never jumped out of an airplane with a parachute, and I'm thinking, why would I want to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? You know, I can think of no reason I want to do that. And I'm thinking, I mean, I, I, when we were there a couple years ago, I kind of thought we'd drive up Pikes Peak. Once we were told about it, I was too scared to drive up Pikes Peak. We got, we paid for the tourist train, the, the, the baby train, we went up there, it took us like eight hours to get up there. He's going to run up faster than the train goes up there. But we need to pray for him, okay? Because, I mean, you had some interesting things, man. That's, that's right at the top of the list. But, yeah, we're designed for much better things than the now. I mean, God has designed us, you know, with this, this quest for an ideal world. 
And it doesn't line up. But he's going to get us there. He's going to get us there. And you're not going to read about it until the very end of the book of Revelation. That's when we get to the ideal world. If you want to get, you want to cheer up, Angel, before you start school again, read Revelation 21 and 22 a couple of times. And I'll cheer you up. But look at these promises we've got. Uh, the end of 1 John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You've trusted Christ, so you may know you've got something. What does he want them to know? It doesn't do you any good not to know what side you're on. Or, or, you know, not not to know which army you're in. Uh, we sang several songs that emphasize what? I am a child of God. Was that a major theme today? Perfect, you know. First uh, John says, you've trusted Christ. You've got it. And then, how about this promise? Is that any good? Who do you think said this? Uh, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And here's the promise for you. I will resurrect that person up on the last day. Is that any good? You like that? Who said that? Os Guinness? Howard Hendricks? That's our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the meanwhile, as we work and wait, let's rest in the fact God will be with us. and He's going to guide us so that even in the midst of discouragement, disease, and death, which we're all going to deal with, in this finite, flawed, and fallen world, we can and should rejoice in the fact there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. And we got to remember the sufferings. This is a direct quote from Romans 8.18. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jacob believed that was coming, and he insisted his bones be buried, his body be buried in the promised land in in light of that. And so let's... Uh, let's Kind of buckle the chin straps, okay, expect some hits, but let's keep our eyes on the one who died for us. Uh, we read in, in uh, Hebrews, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, from where he'll come first for the rapture of the church, and then the second advent. So cheer up, as I've been saying. It's going to get worse, and it's going to get a whole lot better. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, give us a, a faith that's like a battleship, and I pray we'd not wait for the next crisis to hit to want to start building a battleship. Most of us have canoes, and they don't work very well in extreme crises, and we need you to strengthen us from the inside out and just um, kind of uh, bolt on to our the depths of our heart the greatness of the work of Christ in living and dying and being resurrected for us and just kind of uh, overlay our hearts with the reality of heaven and a Savior who's preparing us a place for that for that place. We pray, Father, for anyone this morning who's not from the depth of their heart, as the Holy Spirit allows them to see and believe, that they've not embraced Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Let them see that uh, at their worst they break their own standards, much less yours. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let them see that we can't work our way out of this problem. We can't earn salvation but we don't have to because you love the world so much you gave your son to die and to pay our way into heaven as our substitute and to validate the reality of that by his glorious literal bodily resurrection. And I pray that we would just let crises narrow our focus on the greatness and the promises and the person and the work of Jesus Christ and that you would allow us, like in the eye of the hurricane, we're still going to feel the pain, we're still going to see the winds, but we can be stable at the depth of our soul because we've got a stable, reliable Savior. You keep your promises.
not on our schedule, but on yours, and that's best. And help us to believe that and rest in that. As we uh, go to the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, I pray you prepare our hearts to worship you in that highest form of New Testament worship, that you'd be glorified in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.